Hello and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon Belden-Castingway, director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today I'm speaking with writer, editor, and environmentalist Dominique Browning. Dominique, welcome to Careers by Design. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, to start out, can you tell me a bit about what you're working on right now? Uh, two things. Right now, I am running an organization that I started called Moms Clean Air Force, and we are nearly a million members across the country who are fighting climate pollution, um, all kinds of air pollution, and focusing on children's health, to say nothing of our legacy. We're a project of Environmental Defense Fund. Um, we mobilize parents. We give them information about climate change. We train them to go talk to governors and senators and uh, bring them into Washington to meet with representatives on the Hill. Um, let them know that parents care about climate change. Dominique, in addition to uh, the books you've written and the environmental work that you're doing now, you're quite well known for your long stint as the editor of the late, great House and Garden magazine. And you've made reference in the past to the influence your childhood in Connecticut had on your interest in gardening and the outdoors and environmental issues. Could we start there? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, um, but let me also just backtrack one second. So the other thing I do besides uh, my climate work is I write essays now, mostly for the New York Times. Um, I find that um, thinking about climate change all day long can be very depressing, um, sure. although it gives me a lot of hope to do the kind of work I'm doing. Um, so the, um, the writing, uh, whether it's about life or hair or gardens or books or anything um, just sort of taps into a creative well that I really uh, love having. And on both of those, my writing um, about life in general and uh, about environmental issues, I can trace back uh, very solidly really to, to being um, a child by my father's side who loved to be outdoors. Um, I wouldn't say gardening so much as doing yard work, and I, I, I love doing that, and I loved being connected to the miracle of the natural world that is around us, unmediated by a screen. How did you decide to pursue a liberal arts education? Well, I love to read. And um, I think that's probably what started it. I love to read. I love fiction. I love thinking about uh, books and writers. And and I think probably uh, that's what set me down the path. But when I was at Wesleyan, I had a wonderful teacher. I was in the College of Letters. And I had a wonderful philosophy professor um, who said, you know, we know we were incredibly, this was in the 70s, and we were, the economy was a disaster. We were very worried about finding jobs, of course, as everybody always is. Um, I remember my professor said, you know, it doesn't matter what you're going to be doing, even if you're washing dishes, at least you will know how to think and you will have something to think about. Right. I found that very reassuring. And, and she was right. She was absolutely right. All the discipline that I got as a liberal arts major, how, how to process information, 
how to read, how to listen to people, how to think about what people were trying to say, whether it was in a novel or in a work of nonfiction. All of those skills are skills that I have used in every aspect of my life, which has included a lot of business work. How and when did your post-graduation plans evolve while you were here? <laughs> they were completely by mistake. Uh, so <laughs> I figured I love books. Maybe I'll go do something with books. And um, so I headed down the publishing uh, area. And then my sister, who was at Brown, ran into somebody at the gym who said she was going to something called the Radcliffe Publishing Course. Uh. And it sounded interesting. And I thought, yeah, that does sound interesting. I know nothing about publishing. So why don't I go check that out? And when I got there, I was so enthralled by the magazine side rather than the book side, which seemed very slow to me, mm -hmm. um, that I ended up moving to New York and getting a job as somebody's assistant and um, uh, working in the magazine business for most of my career. Tell me a bit about that first job. Exactly how did you land it and what did you learn from it? Um, just tell me a bit about those really early years. Okay, well, in those days, it was definitely the case that no woman could get a job at a magazine without starting as a secretary or a receptionist. Um, it, it was just really hard. And as I said, the economy was terrible. Um, so I just started knocking on doors, literally <clears throat> picking up the phone, calling uh, contacts that I had made at this publishing course, um, calling people they thought I should call. And it was really tedious and arduous. Um, but I finally uh, connected with a woman who wanted to start her own magazine. Um, she had been working at New York Magazine, and she wanted to start Savvy, the magazine for executive women. Okay. And she had no staff. She had nobody working for her. Um, and I said, well, I could just come and be your assistant. I'll do anything. And you can even try me out for a week um, for free and see if you like me um, because I, you know, couldn't do more than that. I had to get, I had to pay my rent. And, um, of course, in those days, nobody had heard of internships where you don't pay anybody for six months to a year, which is pretty scandalous. Anyway, that was my first job. And how long did you stay with Savvy? Um, I stayed with Judy for, well, I stayed with her for more than a year. Um, about halfway through, the funding she needed didn't come through. But the man she was working with as a publisher uh, needed help on the circulation front. Again, I knew nothing about that, but he was willing to train me. And so I just did this nuts and bolts um, circulation analysis and helped writing direct marketing packages and things like that. And I could see that I, it was really fun and really interesting, and I could see I was about to head into um, the business side and actually get a salary as opposed to a weekly, you know, check. Um, and at that moment, um, an offer came from Esquire magazine. Again, a colleague of the woman I was working for was looking for somebody. They had fired three receptionists. Oh, wow. several assistants and they wanted one person to replace her so i went to esquire to stay on the editorial side um worked for about a dozen guys and they were guys and what was it like being a woman working at esquire 
completely insane. Mad Men does not even begin to cover it. It was <laughs> totally insane. I, you know, it was fun too, but it was also very confusing. Um, and nobody talked about uh, harassment or there were no boundaries in those days. Um, we didn't even understand as young women that that it was inappropriate behavior. We just sort of had to fend for ourselves. So, um, on a on a on a psycho emotional level, I would say it was pretty weird. I once went to talk to. Uh, a secretary who had been there for many, many years. She was a professional secretary. She didn't want to go anywhere else. That's what she wanted to do. And she'd been there for about 30 years. And I said to her, Adele, how do you take this? This is insane. And she opened her bottom drawer, and in there was a bottle of bourbon and a pistol. Oh, she. <laughs> But the craziness was also what allowed me to thrive because um, there was a lot of work that needed to be done. There wasn't a lot of attention to, like, you do your job and I'll do mine. It was just like anybody, hands in, get this done, um, especially because we were going through a change in ownership. I like chaotic situations for early jobs. Um, I advise people to get into startups or turnarounds or any kind of crazy situation because that's where opportunity lies. Uh, you have a chance to really grab more work, show what you can do, invent and reinvent yourself. And that's what I did. I just started doing everything from, you know, answering telephones and making lunch dates to for people to writing book reviews and writing captions and all the things that seemed so thrilling. So how long were you there and what led to the next opportunity? I was there for a few years, and the next opportunity came because I met somebody who I was dating who was living in Washington, D.C., working for the Washington Post, and I didn't want to go work for a newspaper. He didn't want to come to New York. He hated New York. Um, so we kind of thought, oh, okay, middle ground, Texas. At the time, Texas Monthly was a vibrant magazine full of wonderful writers. This still is, but it was a really exciting place to be um, in the 80s. And Texas itself was a state that was going, it was like walking into an Edith Wharton novel um, for, you know, modern times. You could see society sorting itself out and the classes taking root and, um, you know, hadn't, wasn't, I think it was in the, even in the 60s, the, um, Symphony used to play in cattle pens. Um, the cattle would come out, the symphony would come on, the cattle would come back. Uh, you know, it was a really new society and really exciting. So we both went to Texas Monthly, and I never lived off the East Coast. Um, my, my aim had always been towards Europe. Um, so this opened up an entirely new world for me. And I remember when I was at Esquire, everybody would sit around going, like, what, what do you think is going on in America these days? What's happening out there in flyover country? I thought, okay, here's a chance to go find out what's going on. How was the culture at Texas Monthly different from Esquire? Well, it was certainly not as wild. I mean, most of the men, well, I was going to say most of the men, they were married, but they were at Esquire, too. Um it, it was a more conservative um, place, but 
uh, it was not a place at the time where there were women executives, um, apart from the art director who was married to the editor um, and who was a very talented person. Um, but in general, the society in which I lived, most of the women were home um, uh, as homemakers, and the uh, the men were out getting jobs. And um, so, I, I, you know, I think it, it was a it was a different kind of world. I do remember sitting in an editorial meeting, and finally, uh, one of the top editors. Um, he has a national reputation as a writer, interrupted me and said, you know, the problem with women is you just can't hear their voices. They're just in another decibel range, and men can't pick it up. And I guess this is on my mind because I hear all these outrageous comments about Hillary's shrill voice, and it's all sexism. It's all about fear and sexism, and that's what was happening at times in Texas. Mm -hmm. And what led to the next step? <laughs> um, well, uh, let's see. After that, I got an offer to come back to New York, and I miss New York. I, I went to Texas for a year, and I ended up staying five years. Um, and that was great. And again, I think the lesson I would draw from that is that it really took me outside my comfort zone, but it opened up a whole new world. Um, that was terrific. And then I went to Newsweek, uh, where they wanted an editor who would run what they call the lifestyle section. And I agreed, but only on the condition that lifestyle was not treated as, you know, fluff, um, mm -hmm. meaningless stuff, and that they would take it as seriously as they took the national news um, and et cetera. And, and they, they did. Did they? They did. Okay. <laughs> they did. I mean, it, you know, again, it, I feel like my entire, maybe this is just because of my generation, but I feel like my entire career has been having to prove to people uh, what can be done that they didn't think could be done. Um, but so, for example, we did, we did the first uh, cover story on AIDS. We did the first cover story on depression and, um, and, and, and treatments for depression and all the new science that was coming about, out about where depression comes from. Um, and I remember that story, you know, that, that was a cover story. Um, on one hand, media critics were saying, oh, you know, this is the softening of the news magazines. But on the other hand, why? You know, science, medicine, that's an incredibly important subject to report on. And we got sacks of mail, handwritten notes from people saying thank you for bringing this subject to light and describing what I'm going through and, you know, that kind of thing. So these are subjects that really hit a nerve. Um, right, right. And how long were you at Newsweek? Um, I was at Newsweek probably for four or five years. So I, I went from running one section to being promoted. I was the first woman um, assistant managing editor, which was the level of uh, editors right under the main editor. Um, and I left, basically, because one day the editor at the time, who was no longer with us, uh, said to me, we will never have a woman editor of Newsweek. And the one thing I advise everybody to do is find blue sky. Like, never stay in a place where you are being told explicitly you have a limit 
you have a limit to your future. Um, so I began looking around, and one of the areas I covered was education. And I had heard about a project that Chris Whittle was uh, had started um, to uh, to get into public. Ed- well, actually, at the time, it was to get into private education, sort of start a chain of private schools. And I was always interested in education. If I hadn't gone into publishing, I think I would have gone in and become a teacher. Um, but I, you know, I didn't go that way. So I left publishing for a while and went into what was then called the Edison Project, uh, which lasted my, my term there lasted three years, and then went back into magazine business. And what drew you back into publishing? Um, several things. I the uh, the company, the Edison Project, was going in a direction I didn't feel that comfortable with, but I was also going through a divorce, and um, I felt that I I needed the stability of an industry where I knew I could always get a job, whereas what I had been doing, I didn't know whether that was going to exist, and it was too, it was too shaky. Um, and then I got a great phone call to go and run um, a magazine that was floundering called Miravella. Um, and at the time it was sort of presented as the smart woman's Vogue, which is not really fair to Vogue, but, um, it had been started by an ex-editor of Vogue. And I think that's how she wanted to position it. So I went back into magazines with my own magazine and, um, one of those crazy situations where my job lasted literally three months before Rupert Murdoch decided he didn't want to publish his magazine anymore. Um, and that's how I ended up at Condé Nast. Okay. Okay. Tell me about your decision to write your book Around the House and in the Garden, a memoir of heartbreak, healing, and home improvement. Uh, why did you decide to write it, and what were your expectations for it? I had no expectations for it. So I went to Condé Nast to start up House and Garden again. Um, yeah, I have no background in gardening or in interior design or architecture, but I love those subjects. And I think they're really rich and interesting and um, ripe for exploration. One of the things I was told I had to do every month was to write an editor's letter. And so I thought, well, okay, that'll be fun. I haven't been writing. Um, I'll write an essay about what I'm trying to do with these with these issues. Um, and I'll write about why we love our houses and gardens and what a mess they might be, even that we want to show their best face. <clears throat> so I started writing. I mean, it was only like a year later, somebody said, didn't you know? editors don't write their letters they have assistants who write them for them (laughs) but by then I was really enjoying the essay format and um and that uh those essays essentially became uh the core of the book I'm really drawn to essays and I'm really drawn to memoir um because uh, you know, I love Montaigne's essays, not that mine are like that, but I love essays that explore <clears throat> life, the meaning of life, why we do what we do, the nature of friendship, the nature of color, the nat- whatever it is. Um, and there are great antecedents to thinking about all of these things from Goethe to Montaigne to Plato, whatever, you know, big subjects. Um, and uh, and I found it really fun to write about. Um, I just started 
um, actually, the reason I did the book was that my agent called and said, who had been my boss at Esquire, that my overboss, and she said, I really love what you're doing. Why don't we turn these into a book? I guess it's also a sort of a form of therapy, too. Hmm. Interesting. So during the time that you were at House and Garden, tell me about what that was like to, as you say, restart the magazine. What were some of the goals that you had in mind for it? And what did you learn from that experience? The biggest goal I had in mind was to make these magazines smart again. I used to read um, shelter magazines all the time. They're called shelter magazines. And they were interesting. They gave you history. They gave you a sense of place. They gave you information. Um, they gave you technical information. But they had all started slipping. And I found that I was flipping through my magazines in 10 minutes. So one thing I really wanted to do was to bring back the thoughtfulness and to elevate the writing. Um, because, as I said before, you know, all writers think about where they live and um, they all have something to say about the choices they make about their houses or their gardens um, um, and I wanted to have their voices in so I looked back into the history of House and Garden and there had been fabulous pieces uh, and, and wonderful writers um, we didn't have the sort of snobbery that we have now that where some people tend to look down on these subjects um, that you know you would just find anybody writing about uh, writing about your house or your garden so that so that was a very important I wanted to elevate the level of discussion the level of writing and I wanted to make a beautiful magazine and inspire people to um, think about you know their own backyards um, which was a way of connecting with the larger world and it was at house and garden too that I began to read a great deal about climate change um, and then saw, you know, Al Gore's movie, which completely upended my life. Well, you anticipated my next question. I was curious to hear a bit about how that interest in environmentalism developed over the course of your time at magazine. I would, over the time at the magazine, I would think that that would be a logical tie-in uh, with the focus on gardening. Um, it was partly gardening, but it was also partly looking at inefficiency and waste. Um, at the time, people were starting to talk about green living. And so we hired Bill McKibben, for example, and his wife, Sue Halpern, to write a column for us about going green. And how hard was it? How did they do it? What did they do just at home? Um, and then, you know, I, I always believe in great design and um, in beautiful things, and I don't think that has to be compromised for the sake of uh, non-toxic materials or green materials. And so we hired Zem Joaquin, who started a wonderful site called Eco Fabulous, to write about green materials and um, that kind of sourcing. So, it, you know, it was thematically there. In the garden world, um, while I was there, the zone map for the U.S. changed. They started moving, scientists were moving the southern zones further north because mm -hmm. plants could 
tolerate warmer climates, further right. longer, warmer climates, further north. So things were really changing, and things were changing in my backyard. I was growing camellias outside in Pelham, New York, uh, which was unheard of. So I, I really saw things changing, and um, and the, the pieces were all coming together. And then I saw the Al Gore movie, and um, I just flipped out. I just thought well, this is such an enormous problem. Obviously, the greatest minds of our country and of our world are going to get together and figure this out and solve it. Um, little did I know. Tell me about the day you found out Condé Nast was shutting down House and Garden. It was one of the worst days of my life, um, you know, barring anything horrible happening to family um, and health, uh, you know, as Fred said, work and love, and uh, being told out of the clear blue sky uh, that the magazine would no longer exist, I, it just absolutely shuddered me. I felt hugely responsible for every single person working for me. I knew who had tuitions to pay, health bills to pay, mortgages to pay. You know, I knew we'd been together for 13 or 14 years. I knew everybody. Um, um, I just, I felt awful that uh, that we were all going to be out of work and they were going to be out of work. Um, I just dumbfounded uh, by the whole thing and panicked. I, I went into... Uh, you know, I didn't immediately that day go into a panic, um, but uh, I, I'm a good person to have in your boat when all hell breaks loose because I can keep a very level head, but I melt down afterwards. <laughs> That's what I did. Why did you decide to write about that experience in your book, Slow Love, and did you find that uh, difficult or cathartic? Oh, I definitely found it cathartic to write about um, and. I wrote about it because uh, I think it is important for people to share their failures, and I considered it a failure, uh, even though it wasn't really in my control. I, I think it's their failures and their traumas, because I, what I've come around to understanding is that the key to life is resilience. It's all about getting up again. Um, and that is a subject that I really enjoy exploring. What, how do you nurture resilience? How do you develop resilience? How do you learn about it from watching other people? Um, and uh, between that and the relationship that was coming to an end at the same time, um, it was just a double whammy. And I wanted to climb out of the hole. And I wanted to be watching myself as I climbed out of the hole, um, watching how I went to ground and what I did that was nurturing for me. And maybe it will help other people. Um, maybe it's just my idiosyncratic path, but I don't think so. How did you go about deciding what your next step would be? I didn't. <laughs> I, I, I really was clueless. Um, I, I needed a job and I wanted a job, um, and so I just thought I'm going to be open to everything. I just I started a campaign personally called Just Say Yes, and so anyone who called me to do anything, I said yes. And um, 
and it was quite humbling in some ways. Um, you know, I would I would be writing articles <clears throat> for editors who, you know, I had known my whole life or who um, who were pretty mediocre in some cases, and I would just be like biting my tongue to say. Like, I can't believe you're treating me this way. Um, I can't believe you would treat any writer this way. Uh, but I just thought I've got to put myself out there and do whatever I can. And I got some really interesting consulting jobs. Um, in uh, I went to work for the Wall Street Journal to help them reinvent their Saturday paper. Um, and so I did things in the uh, you know journalism world. But I began to think. I wanted to try something else. I felt like I'd done a lot of different kinds of magazines, and I didn't feel that excited about where magazines were going. My entire life shifted to online. I stopped subscriptions. I did everything online. I started a blog um, that came out of my book called Slow Love Life. And I also started thinking about the, um, the environmental issues that I had um, been worrying about. Um, again, in the Just Say Yes campaign, a woman from Environmental Defense Fund called me, the friend of a friend of a friend, and said, you know, I loved your columns in House and Garden. I would love for you to write about the work that we're doing at EDF um, in the same kind of voice, in the same um, spirit. And I said, sure, of course, you know, never thinking about how different it is to write about ocean acidification on uh, sofas, um, but I dove in, and while I was doing that, I began to understand that all of this, this world was a very closed world. Scientists were talking to scientists, economists were talking to economists, environmentalists were talking to each other, and nobody was talking to people like me. I would go to these interviews, and I would have to stop and say, hold on again, repeat that entire thing what did you just say in plain English? Right. And that is how I started thinking about communicating about climate change and climate solutions um, to people like me who want to be involved but can't find a way in. We can't understand it. What do you think has been your biggest accomplishment with Mom's Clean Air Force? Oh, um, I would say our biggest accomplishment has been linking climate change and air pollution to health, and particularly children's health. I really wanted to move the narrative away from polar bears and on the people. Mm -hmm. I felt like what was happening with climate change was that everybody was talking about it as something that was happening up there in the North Pole, and I love polar bears, but... You know, that's kind of where the focus was. And I wanted to say, no, this is about people. And not only people, this is about the, the, the most vulnerable among us, our tiny people, whose lungs are beating faster, who are taking in more pollution, um, whose lives are ahead of them. You know, is this really the world we want to leave behind for our children? So I felt like the health message, you know, connecting climate change to increasing disease vectors because of heat, um, to smog because of heat, uh, to all the problems that happen with flooding and drought and um, to asthma uh, 
related issues. All of those things would be a way for people to understand this is happening now and it is happening at home. Right. Absolutely. I think we were, yeah, we were very successful doing that um, because by the uh, end of his first term, Obama, um, really, well, actually into his second term, Obama's White House and Obama himself were talking about health and climate. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. What is it that you still hope to accomplish in your career? I will be really, really happy if I can be part of a movement that is pushing the U.S. towards policies that will make renewable energy happen as fast as possible. Right now, we are just a mess without the right policies. We've got, and the reason coal companies are hurting is because of natural gas. We are laying down infrastructure methane infrastructure that is going to lock us into fossil fuels for the next 40 or 50 years. Meanwhile, we are subsidizing the fossil fuel industry, and we have for 100 years to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars every single year. It is such a corrupt system right now. And and we're giving pennies by comparison to the renewable industry. So we have to change these policies, and that's what it's going to take, is system-wide changes so that we can ramp up to renewables much faster, the way Germany, for example, has done, and we can wean ourselves off of fossil fuels as fast as possible. So if that can happen in my lifetime, and actually if it can happen in the next four to eight years, I will be an extremely happy person. That. <laughs> Sounds good. Dominique <laughs> Browning, I have very much enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.